Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Climate Crisis Advisory Group's first public meeting of 2022. Happy New Year. I think I can still say that. And I hope uh, your year has kicked off to a good start. Now, we took a short break over the holidays, but we're back and ready to discuss the most crucial topics concerning the ongoing climate emergency. Now, a new year means new ideas. So we're going to be trying out a few different formats over these um, next months of the monthly meetings going forward. And we want to provide you, the viewing public, the best possible access to our experts. So watch out for different ways to get involved as we go forward. Now, this week, we have invited uh, five guests, all from different walks of life, to ask the questions that matter most to them about the climate crisis. Our warmest welcome to author Kim Stanley Robinson, George Monbiot, writer and environmental activist, Niendo Machua, communications specialist for the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, Tomia Gregory, a climate justice activist, and Dave Vetter, sustainability senior contributor for Forbes magazine. You are all very welcome. So with another year gone by and COP26 firmly behind us, we're looking ahead to the urgent action required in 2022 to help us safeguard and repair our planet once and for all. Um, it's my pleasure to now invite our, uh, our first guest today to talk to our experts. So, George, if you can, if I can come to you first, and perhaps I can ask you uh, to briefly share some of the thoughts on last year, uh, particularly COP26, some of the lessons we might have learned, and then um, to think about what we need to achieve in the run up to COP26 and beyond. So, George, Tell us what you know, and please feel free to um, speak to our experts. Go easy on them. Well, th thank you so much, and, and, and thanks, everyone, for, for, for listening to my ramblings. Um, I came away from COP26, um, well, in, in a really quite intense emotional state. In fact, a few days later, I broke down on national TV um, in a rather mortifying way um, because I just had reached the point after 37 years of sort of sublimating things and rationalizing things and intellectualizing things where I thought right we are totally screwed here because <laughs> the people who should be taking it seriously just are doing nothing of the kind and so yeah we had the host of the meeting Boris Johnson turns up on the first day, makes some bullshit speech about being James Bond, the great white saviour, come to rescue the world, appears to fall asleep while other delegates were, were talking, takes a private jet that evening back to London for dinner with some climate deniers, during which he cooks up a plan to try to get one of his former ministers off the hook for some blatant corruption he'd been involved in, creates a massive political scandal, which then sucks all the oxygen out of the climate talks. And it was just a head in the hands moment. And, and alongside that, <clears throat> I saw the site um, three times of delegates from the global south sitting on the floor and crying. It's the most extraordinary thing to see. Now, why was this happening? Because people have come from the other side of the world at enormous difficulty and expense. There are so many barriers raised with the crazy visa restrictions, um, the, the, the promise of COVID vaccines from the UK government, which never turned up, um, the massive expense of accommodation in Glasgow. And then they get there and are told, oh, sorry, there's no room in the meeting room. Um, we didn't lay on big enough meeting rooms and and the reason they were sitting on the floor was there weren't any chairs either and it just all contributed to this sense this is not something that is being taken seriously you know this is the most important issue on earth and yet again it has been totally marginalized by contrast and uh, by very great contrast in the streets i saw something very exciting taking place which was uh, a real shift in 
the, the climate justice, the global climate movement, where it became a genuinely global one. You know, we've often talked about it being a global climate movement, but it has tended, the most prominent people in it have tended to be people like me. Um, but what we saw happening there was um, a real a shift, a sense that it was people from the global south now coming to the forefront of the meeting, being uh, of the movement, being the most prominent voices and people from the global north stepping back and allowing that to happen. And I think I saw something quite revolutionary and very hopeful taking place there. And so somehow what we've got to do now is to bridge the gap between these two completely different situations. A situation like in Glasgow, where you had a totally feckless government of the global north, basically just walking all over people, not caring a damn about the outcome. You had highly committed people in, in the streets who are prepared at last to be led by the people on the front lines of this crisis. Uh, the, the people who, who, who are already experiencing what the rest of the world will one day experience. And somehow it's those people we need to put in the position of leadership um, when it comes to the, the COP process itself. And I think that requires a completely different process. I mean, we've now had 26 summits, 25 and a half of them, frankly, have been failures. There was a sort of 50% success in, in Paris in 2015. One definition of madness is doing the same thing repeatedly and expecting a different result. Let's not keep doing the same thing. Let, let's, we, we've seen tremendous <coughs> innovation in a whole load of other fields when it comes to negotiation, in international diplomacy, in business, in the voluntary sector, um, family relationships. There's been huge innovation worldwide. But when it comes to the climate summits, it might as well be the, the Conference of Berlin in 1885 with, 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 with a few large powers carving up the world between them and ignoring everyone else. Let's bring some of that innovation into this process and let's bring to the very front of this process the people we should be listening to who are the people who are on the front line. In other words, let's bring the energy that was locked out of that conference into the very heart of it. George, um, thank you so much for that. And, um, you know, I really feel your frustration. I've actually, I'll admit, I've spent many like, nights where I've been close to tears just trying to work out what is that formula that we need to, to, to make the world click, to make them really understand. Um, and, and it's just... It, it, it is just so difficult and, and I really get what you mean about the, you know, that, that, that shift, getting the right people to have a voice and to be at the front and have a, have a, a place at the table, a seat at the table. Um, so thank you so much for that, George. Are there any specific questions you'd like to ask to our, to our wonderful panel of experts here, George? Well, I think I would like to sort of launch off where I ended there is to say, right, you know, if you were designing this process, I mean, I think we can, I hope we can all accept that at the very least, this process has not taken us where we want to be. Something needs to change. If you were designing it, how would you do it differently? How would you run a COP climate summit? Great question. Um... Who would like to take that first, that question? Shall we go to Sir, Sir David first? Sorry, David. <laughs> I'm sure he's up for it. Dave, just unmute yourself. Yeah, I'm trying to unmute myself. Thank you. Uh, George, thank you. And thank you for your comments. I think we all valued them. Um, what, what, how should we run COP? I think I think that there are some significant problems with COP itself, uh, and the the reason I'm saying this is because 197 nations under the United Nations have to follow procedures that were set up in the setting up of the United Nations, and these procedures amount to enormous procedures at every level of decision making, which which take years and years to filter into the discussions that we were hearing. Uh, I mean, what what I think was very disappointing in terms of the negotiations themselves at COP26 
was how little progress was made since 2015 in Paris. Right, so what, what, what you have is, is this very, very slow process. I, I must say that I'm, I'm looking for alternatives. And I, I think uh, one alternative is to look for willing nations uh, to come forward and form a grouping uh, to take the right sort of actions, the sort of actions that we want. Now, Aaron Arbor, who's sitting amongst us, works very hard with the Indian government to establish the commitment made by the Indian government. But it was a commitment made out of frustration, I think it would be fair to say, Aaron Arbor. And that frustration comes from the fact that the developed world has not at all stood up to its promises made earlier in terms of not only reducing emissions, themselves from their own countries, but also in terms of the funding that they were talking about offering back in uh, earlier 2008-9. So we have never materialized $100 billion a year. There's been a, a series of failures to the, the developing countries of the world. So I, I think the real, the real question is this, is it possible that we could form a grouping of 25 nations representing 80% of global GDP. And those nations already, the reason I'm saying this, form the Mission Innovation Group that is currently spending $30 billion a year public money on the technologies needed in the post-fossil fuel world. Is it possible we could expand on that and get those countries to deliver on these promises? China and India are on that grouping, but so are the United States Europe, the United Kingdom, etc. So I don't know. I, I think all very frustrating. What we need also, of course, is to listen to the people on the streets. Mm. And I have to say that I have said in the past that COP26, if you take it as the moment when all these people gathered together in Glasgow, that moment produced some really remarkably strong uh, things happening. How do we incorporate that into the decision-making process at a government level? I don't, I don't have the answer. Perhaps mm. my colleagues will, Addy. Yeah, no, it's, it's I, I think we're, we're hitting on a rich topic here. And it's, it's the, that for me, which I feel is the disconnect between the everyday person, the public and the bureaucracy and these big, uh, these big systems that we've put together to, to, to try and sort out climate change. And I think the everyday public, everyday people don't really think anything is coming of it. And they, they don't know how to connect with that. Um, yeah, let, let's, let's see, uh, let, let's, Professor Lavanya, I can see you've got your, your, your hand up. Um, what would you like to chip in on this one? Uh, thank you, Alde, and and thank you, George, for your um, you know for your remarkable uh, sort of insight into the process. Um, I do feel the sense of frustration, and I agree with that sense of frustration. Uh, but I think we should be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater as far as the UN process is concerned. And I say this uh, say this for a couple of reasons in particular, which would help the global south. The UN process is the only process that has all 197 states at the table. And that does mean it does come with constraints. It comes with a consensus-based decision-making process, but that process is designed particularly and primarily to protect the global South, the smaller nations. Uh, we have had, uh, we have had, uh, you know, and we continue to have uh, sort of climate clubs of willing nations, but there's always a danger that these might end up being the coalitions of the unwilling. Um, there's also a danger that these coalitions don't include uh, the least developed countries or the small island states, and these states have provided the moral conscience for the entire UN process. So I think it's, it's important to have the UN process in place, but not place all our expectations on the UN process. Um, I think there are limits to what the UN process can do, but it provides a valuable fora to push all of us together in a common direction of travel. And I think although we haven't moved as far as we would like, in particular in actually solving the problem, we have come a far way from where we started in 1990 when these negotiations started. We now have a global direction of travel, the 1.5 degree uh, target uh, temperature rise um, uh, limit is something that came out of the Paris Agreement. And we do all, including those on the outside, 
do sort of subscribe to that and are empowered by it and are energized by it. So I think we should expect less from the UN process, but certainly the UN process is a very important part of the overall picture. I think the key element that we need to look for is accountability. And that accountability comes from within the process in a limited sense, but also from outside the process, from all the climate cases that are being filed in national courts that are using the Paris Agreement as a hook to actually um, uh, uh, fight their cases. And this is happening in the global south increasingly, but of course we have the Urhenda judgment, the German Federal Constitutional Court judgment. These are being filed by, uh, by uh, youth activists. And there are also cases in the Korean uh, national courts, uh, constitutional courts, as well as in Brazil. So I think we need to put our faith in uh, multiple uh, sort of avenues and not just in the UN process, but we shouldn't throw the baby out of the bathwater the UN process does. Uh, have some value. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Levanyana Rajamani. I, 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 do you know what? Within accountability, I think wrapped in there is leadership. I think that's what we're really looking for is leadership. People who are going to take ownership and responsibility for what they say. Um, let's move on to uh, Dr. Aranaba Gosh, Gokosh. Yeah, I see you have got your hand up there. Um, almost exactly 80 years ago, uh, just short of two months, so Stafford Cripps came to India during the Second World War uh, to try and negotiate the support of the Congress, uh, the Indian Freedom Movement, for the war effort. And he offered dominion status to India after. Yeah. I think we've lost you, Aranaba. Uh, oh, that's a shame. That is a shame. Um, perhaps we'll get back to, to Aranaba once he's got a connection again. Um, can you still hear? Oh, yeah, we can hear you. We can hear you. Yeah. The lights just went out. <laughs> oh, um, Gandhi, Ga Gandhi uh, responded by saying this offer for dominion status after the war was a post-dated check. So, sorry, could you just rewind? Because I think we missed... Um, a, a little bit of what you were saying. Could you start again, please? I will. I was saying almost exactly 80 years ago, Sir Stafford Cripps came to India to negotiate what would be India's status after the Second World War to get the support of the freedom uh, movement in uh, for the war effort. Now, Gandhi uh, responded by saying that that offer was a post-dated check on a failing bank. Now, what I see is that the way we structured the COPS, and I completely agree with Lavanya about the legitimacy of a forum and a platform where everybody has a voice. But the way we structured the COP is that the, is the COPS become a bank where we are banking commitments. And because every time we don't fulfill on those commitments, you're going to have a run on that bank one day or the other. That's exactly how banks run. You lose confidence, there'll be a run on the bank. So to respond to George's provocative and right question, how would I design it differently? In the minimum, I would design COPS as where you bank actions rather than your bank commitments. And that's the shift in the paradigm that we need after nearly 30 years of negotiations. That doesn't mean the actions will happen through the COP. The actions might happen through coalitions of the willing. The actions might happen with through cities, that might happen through companies, that might happen through citizens. But in the minimum, if we don't spend at least three quarters of our time of the two weeks discussing the banking of actions taken, rather than discussing the banking of commitments that we know will not be fulfilled, at least based on 30 years of history, we'll think these are post-dated checks on a failing bank. Thank you, Dr. Aranaba. That was um, really, really powerful and insightful. Um, thank you also, George, for kicking us off. Um, that was an excellent start. Um, really, really love the work you're doing and do come back again um, and, and, and stay with us because we've got plenty more really interesting um, questions and conversations uh, to move on to. So we're now going on to, um, to moving on to Niendo who joins us from Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, thank you for being here, Niendo, first of all, and please tell us a little bit about yourself 
and the change that you're hoping to see this year? <clears throat> Hi, so as you've heard, my name is Nyendo. I'm based in Nairobi, but I'm currently in the lakeside city of Kisumu, for those of you who know Kenya. So I'm in a place where we eat a lot of fish, uh, but I'm based in Nairobi. Um, I like what George has asked. It's very provocative. I mean, we've had 26, 26 cops happening and there's no tangible action. And I'm maybe beginning to think it's how we communicate. So I'm a communication specialist at Agra. And some of the work that I do is supporting the resilience and the climate team coming up with communications products, you know, news items, blog articles, videos, and podcasts. And every time I embark on working on one, I think to myself, who is going to listen to this and what kind of action do I want to elicit from this person? Um, and it got me thinking about, do we even understand the difference maybe between climate change and global warming? Do we know? Or is it just fancy terms that we throw around and being sensational about it and you know, making it look like it's doomsday? And I like what uh, Arnaba has said about you know, banking actions. Maybe it's time for us to start talking about the successes that are coming. Like we have different interventions. For example, at Agra, we have two major projects that we work with around resilience and climate. We are doing regenerative agriculture projects in, um, in Embu and Meru counties. And we, in here in Kisumu, specifically in the Kakamega forest ecosystem, we are working on sustainable land and you know, forest management. And we do have good success stories coming out of that, but those never get in the news. It's always, you know, either there's a city that's sinking because of climate change or there's drought or now with COVID, everything we've gone, we've reset back to where we were. We've, you know, get, we've lost a lot of gains that we had made. So I think it's how we put our messages across. Are we thinking about the audiences? Are we segmenting our messages? Are we communicating the real things that, you know, if we ignore COP, I'm not saying we ignore it completely, but there's good stories coming out of this. The first time I heard about COP, I probably was like, what? six years ago. And I was trying to get accredited and I was told, you know, there's a blue zone, a green zone, a red zone. I'm like, okay, so where are people supposed to, the public, where are we supposed to give our opinions if it's zoned out to specific people? And I do respect that there's, you know, protocol and different stages for different people. But I feel like the people are left, we're like pawns, we are just there, we just exist. Climate change is real, it's affecting everyone. But how do we communicate to elicit public action and participation in a positive way and not just preach gloom and misery and doom. So that's in, in the space that I'm in, that's what I'm trying to change, be more positive, to be more hopeful, um, to give more energy into this space that, you know, we can do something. It doesn't have to be a blanket solution, but different solutions from around the world can inspire and elicit good, a good attitude basically that will keep us, you know, going until we find a solution. Thank you, Nendo. Um so I mean I, I, I get what you're you're talking about. It's the messaging. And I think it's it's always been a big problem uh with, with climate action and uh the, the dealing with the climate crisis. How do we get the messaging across that's clear and have that balance where it's not too doom and gloom, there is positivity, but it's real. It's real. So people really understand what's going on. Um, let's let's go over to um, Professor Mark Maslin first here, see um, and hear what you've got to say on this one. Well, I have to say thank you for a wonderful uh, question, and I have to say, George, we all felt exactly the same after COP twenty six. And a little aside, I think we really need to have a meeting about how we help people deal with climate anxiety and how we are going to deal with not just us, but the new generation that's coming through who feel it much more than say my generation or Georgie's generation uh, does. So I think that's something important. With messaging, I think we are now moving into a different era where we need to talk about win-win solutions. But we also have to actually think of it as a much wider issue than just climate change. I'm always struck, there are still 7 million children that die needlessly every year of preventable diseases and hunger. Mm. There's 825 million people that still go to bed feeling hungry every night. There's 1 billion people that still do not have regular access to just clean drinking water. So we have these issues of extreme poverty, security, and we then have the environmental crisis on top of that. 
So we need to build communications that talk about win-win, that we do things to decarbonize, but that also makes you healthier. It also makes people wealthier. It makes people safer. And I think this is the real change. Instead of all the doom and gloom, which is important, it is serious and it is really very scary. But there are so many things that we have technology, we actually have money. And this is something that frustrates me. The world creates $88 trillion every single year. So there's no reason why we can't lift everybody out of poverty and decarbonize by using all of that money, if we so wish. So I think that's, for me, the solutions are the key. It's about messaging people to say, look, if you have politicians that really care about you and care about the planet, that's going to help. If we use this technology with this social solution, that's going to improve everybody's life. And so I think that's the change. And I think the pandemic in many ways has allowed us to talk about positivity and a positive future, which we weren't able to do beforehand. Thank you, Mark. That was really, really good. I, 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 I'm, there's something that always sticks in my mind in that, you know, trying to connect people with the fact that caring for the planet is also about caring for, for us as, as a human race. You know, understanding that, our, that the wealth that we create is probably more important that we put it into looking after our planet. Um, Let's move on to, uh, to, to Professor Nerili Abraham. I see you've got, Abraham, sorry, I see you've got your name up, your hand up there. Thanks, Ade, and thanks, Nando, for the question. Um, I, I'd just like to add, on top of um, the, the excellent response we've already had from, from Mark, that I think um, it's really important when we're communicating about climate change that we don't just focus in on the the worst case scenarios. Um, there, there's certainly some really scary aspects of climate change that we really wanna make sure that we do everything in our power to avoid. But it's not just about telling people about those worst cases. We also need to be telling people about what are the options if we actually take this ambitious action, what's the more positive future that can lie ahead of us? So we're giving people that vision as to if they take this action, then what would the world look like? And that this is a world that actually is a much better place to, to live in and for your children to live in. Um, and I think the other aspect of the, the communication, um, and we're seeing this more and more in terms of the science that's actually being undertaken, um, looking at climate change, is not just looking at this as a, as a global picture, and this is something that's gonna affect somebody somewhere, but actually really drilling it down to what does this mean for different parts of the world and how so people can actually take that information and translate it into sort of what does this actually mean for me and so i think that we're we're making progress in that in terms of the scientific information that's available and it's important that we also communicate that so that people can actually put themselves into this story so that they have that motivation to actually make changes themselves and to push for those broader system changes as well I love the positivity that's coming through. This is what we want. This is what we're trying to get across. You know, like one of my old basketball coaches used to always say to us, don't come to me with problems, just solutions. I just want solutions. Um, I think Professor Lorraine Whitmarsh, you might have some solutions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, no, I, I completely agree with uh, Mark and Nerily. I think, uh, and I think as well, you, you flagged, Nagendo, that there are people already making these changes and the more that we can show hey people are already starting to do these things and look how positive they are they're, they're not just positive but they are they are actually doable people like you are, are making these changes so actually highlighting that i think can give people a sense that you're not alone in making these changes actually people are you're part of a movement you're already yeah people are already doing these things and i think the other thing i just mentioned is that while i think a key element of com effective communication is knowing your audience and targeting your message to what your audience cares about to their values um and people do have different values to some extent so you you might want to emphasize certain things to business leaders and other things to members of charities or members of the public etc but we also have a lot in common and there's really strong research now showing that 
um, we have we have a lot of values in common, including fairness is really important to people, uh, nature and, and valuing the countryside, particularly sort of your national or local countryside. Um, family and community is hugely strong across across nations and across people within nations. So I think we also need to really um, focus our messaging around what we have in common and, and emphasizing the, those values and the things that we all care about. Thank you, Professor Lorraine. Um, Let's hear from Professor Laura Diaz Anadon. Thank you. And thank you uh, to George and Nagenda for the questions. I, I just wanted to add something very quickly uh, since we had uh, great answers and, and it's linking a little bit both questions. Uh, the thing that frustrated me the most out of the COP process was that there didn't seem to be too much of a recognition um, across governments that some of the areas where we have made some progress, and yes, admittedly, we haven't seen emissions coming down as we would want to, but the places where we have made progress, and, and these are things like the cost of renewable um, power, batteries, solicited lighting, those were due to, to a large extent, public policies. So uh, the, when we talk about what um, could make a difference or, or what are things that are positive, but that we should build on and not just forget about, is in this question of what governments can do, but creating efforts, fiscal policies, regulations to make significant advances in specific industries and sectors. So um, in terms of what one could add, um, build on from the in the current COP process is to have regional fora, again, to some extent, I know that they exist, but regional fora where you have different countries that share similar issues related to natural resources or adaptation needs, capabilities, values. I think there's a lot more potential in working across regions and also across sectors. Um, so I think that the sectoral and regional um, aspect of what can be done for mitigation and adaptation is something um, that we could build on. And again, I think we should all, and I tried to do this, but we should all make the case that we do know what policies have worked for things like solar panels and wind turbines and lithium ion batteries. And we should build on those policies to get cheap green hydrogen so not just count on um, you know, things happening by themselves because they haven't. So I think this question of changing the way we do public policy to tackle specific problems that we need to tackle to reduce emissions uh, is something that, again, I think we have an opportunity here to get to win-win um, uh, solutions as Mark was suggesting. Thank you, Professor Anadan. I, I'm, I'm really buzzing about how we, we've started here because it, it just feels to me like this is the right energy that we have to take on to tackle this solution. So thank you everybody for your contribution so far. And please don't just keep this to, to within this forum. We need to keep spreading this message and getting it out there to everybody. Niendo, um, thank you for your question. Uh, that was great. Please stay with us because we are moving on to our next uh, question, um, which is coming from climate justice activists Tolmia Gregory. Now, Tommy, Tolly, it's really lovely to have you here. Um, I'm going to throw it over to you for you for some thoughts. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a, a real privilege and an honour to be here. Um, so, just a quick introduction to who I am. Um, as you said, I'm a climate justice activist um, as well as an artist. And so, for the past couple of well, a few years now, I've been fo solely focusing on the climate crisis and what we can do to inspire more people into action, especially people in my generation. Um, I grew up wanting to be a fashion designer and started an online blog where I was sharing my love of fashion um, and then started to realize how impactful the fashion industry was in terms of the climate crisis and how exploitative it is both on planet and people. And basically through that, not only communicating you know, online, but also through direct action, I went up to COP and protested outside of it and things like that. Um, but I've also started talking a lot more about kind of imagination and which is why I'm really happy that Nugendo um, um, started speaking about communication um, and something that Mark said uh, really like just goes along with this so well. It's kind of like not seeing very basic things and kind of win-win solutions is really radical. And I think what we need to do in the next year and also beyond is to just start really imagining what the future looks like after we've put all of these great things into place. It's really important that we don't just get bogged down in, you know, the doom and the gloom has already been mentioned, but also start actually stepping into that world. Because, you know, if we only focus on what we're fighting against, what comes after that? 
which is also why I'm just really honoured that um, Stan is with us because his book, um, The Ministry for the Future, is an incredible example of actually taking that on and thinking about that future in a radical way. Um, and again, like Mark said, simple things aren't radical and we really need to create that mindset shift that we're not asking for too much. I know, especially being an activist, I'll come into spaces and I will feel like I'm like, as, as some people may say, like a, a young snowflake who like cares too much <laughs> and is being told, you know, like, okay, calm down a bit. But we you know we're in a climate crisis. Like I want to fight as much as I can, push for it as much as I can, because at the end of the day, like I'm just fighting for a livable and healthy and joyful future for everyone. And that should never be asking for too much. Um, but in terms of like practical stuff and, and what will lead on to my question, obviously as an activist, I kind of dip my toes into a lot of camp a lot of different campaigns. Um, and one in the UK that also we were working on up in um, COP last year was the Stop Cambo campaign, which is working to stop the Cambo oil field in the North Sea. And that's actually been a really great example of people power and people taking actionable steps to stop a really destructive fossil fuel project. Um, the Cambo oil field would be equivalent to, I think, 18 coal power plants um, in terms of emission per year, which is just not the direction we need to be heading in. And that has now been paused, which is because of the work of climate activists and campaigns and movements organizing around it. And I think that's a really positive example of what we need to be doing more of in terms of climate action, like working together and really showing that people power matters. Um, and I, I mean, thank you for that, Tolly. Really, really great insights. And, and um, I just wanted to know, have you got a, a, a specific question um, that you would like to ask any of our panel as well? Yeah, so I guess we all have different ideas of what activism is. I mean, I, I know I do. And often people will find me saying that, like, making a cup of tea can be a form of activism because it's, you know, self-care and looking after each other. So what can activism be and what should it look like going forward? And what are some great examples people have seen within different fields of, of activism and taking action? Great question. I'm going to go to Dr. Tira Mustanen first for this one. Well, thank you for the um, outlining of the UK success on, on that one and highlighting the fact that <clears throat> there are things to be done today, next week, in a year and in a decade. A lot of the things that we have heard today have all also to do with uh, how do we perceive place. And uh, maybe that's what I would like to bring into the game, that uh, a lot of the climate decisions are made on a very generic and level playing field where you might have the map of a country or map of a city or <clears throat> the whole planet. And again, chess pieces are moved on that board, decisions will be made. And as we heard from um, uh, the colleague in Africa, uh, how much do we actually know about these places? So one of the things to try to con put things into context would be to know more and allow these voices, the places and, and uh, the context to come forward. We don't often discuss the fact that, um, in a way, the big narration on climate change, in my mind, is also rather assimilative. What I mean by that is that we are told there's very little we can do. There's very little nature left and uh, it's decided all in some other place where we will never go. And, and uh, it comes after a fashion, a form of control. We can debate whether that's a, that's a form of control that, that that's done by an agency or not. That's not really the key. The key is that how do we break away each one of us, no matter where we are, away from that space of uh, uh, the lost futures and the lost narratives. And I live here in a boreal village and today I have 77 centimeters of snow, so I can't really complain because it's, it's looking like the winters of the old. But the, um, my question every day when I meet with the BBC or with some of the <clears throat> media houses or the Guardian that wants to report on the work that we do in the Arctic and Boreal 
or, or just anybody else, is to try to start from zero. Do you know anything about the North? Do you know anything about Wolverines? Do you know anything about reindeer? Do you know about traditional knowledge? Do you know that the world's oldest net finding or the fishing net 11,000 years ago was from our region? So, so these are some of the examples that are, of course, not relevant for <clears throat> as such for contents now, but I'm trying to make the point that the, the story starts from reawakening to talk about the place and the location and the time where we are. And uh, that's often been the very successful way of waking up. And once you realize what kind of birds you have around you, what's being threatened by uh, those kind of things, as you explained to us about the oil field, then we might have a fighting chance. Because then there's more knowledge, there's more understanding of the actual world that's here, and not the one that we are given by the endless barrage of uh, social media, conventional media, and the, <clears throat> the structure that has led us to this problem in the first place. So what I'm really trying to talk about here is perception of reality. And from that perception of reality, we may have a chance joining hands with other people, other organizations, other communities to form alliances to fight for these things. And that's really the only thing that has worked here. Thank you. That was beautiful, Tiro. Really good. Um, let's hear from Dr. Fatima Denton on this as well, please. Thanks, Ade. Um, so I, I see three dimensions of activism. Um, the first one is about contestation, but it's really contesting the mainstream narratives. Um, if you haven't been to COP26, most of what you would have heard is about the culprits and the countries that are creating the problem or not wanting to do enough. And there was a lot of talk about China and India. So there is a sense that the, the narrative, the mainstream narrative, the mainstream media somehow want to point fingers at countries that they see as, you know, the bad ones. And in this story, I think, you know, the whole climate change discussion and debate, we're all culprits. So I think it's not a good idea to sort of point to one country or the other necessarily. I mean, there are countries that are, yes, maybe doing more or doing less, but there's a sense that there is a deliberate attempt to control the narrative. So for me, contestation and, you know, looking at the mainstream narrative and contesting that is important. Secondly, um, I would say acti activism for me is also about solidarity. And I think that point has been made. So if I have problems in Uganda related to floods, uh, it is happening in my backyard, but it needs to also be retailed out so that that story can travel further and others can relate to my story. And in that sense, they can also you know, make the story known. So I think that aspect of solidarity realizing that it's happening somewhere else, but it's about our enlightened self-interest at the end of the day. Um, I, the, the third part of it for me is about um, knowledge. And again, the knowledge is important because right now we've, we've been told certain stories about certain types of, um, I would say, energy resources. Um, and I think I've mentioned this in the past, there are countries in Africa that are basically saying that natural gas is an important part of their development trajectory. Not that they necessarily want to use it forever, but they do want to industrialize and they see this as important. So in that storytelling or their own sort of development trajectory, I think understanding that part of their development trajectory and the knowledge that might come in and support them is important. So if we are going to be engaged in the climate debate, we also need to look at stories across the world and be able to say, okay, the trajectory is not gonna be the same direction of travel for everyone. And therefore we need to be able to give some countries an opportunity to look at alternative solutions. And these things will come with knowledge. It comes with understanding how the economies work, 
It comes with understanding what kind of fiscal burdens they faced with, but it comes also with understanding what sort of alternatives and scope, um, um, timing um, I would say they've got. So these are all things that are part of that knowledge arsenal. If we don't understand the knowledge elements of it, then we will not be able to support um, people that are faced with really dire consequences and do not have much um, in the way of choices. Thank you, Dr. Fatima Denton. So much beautiful and rich information there from Fatima and, and Tiro. And you know, the 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 idea of, uh, of knowledge, understanding our world and understanding our connection with the world is so important and also not playing the blame game. Tolly, thank you so much for your questions. Um, and you know, listen, I love snowflakes. I wish we had a blizzard of snowflakes um, because it's it seems like we've weaponized snowflakes and weaponized caring. And I think it's so important that we care more. Um, but listen, we're gonna move on now um, to our next uh, question. And we've got, um, we're going to turn to Stan Robinson. So thank you for joining us, Stan. Um, please tell us more about your experience with the climate crisis and what you're looking to see this year. Thank you for that. And thank you, everybody. It's a pleasure to join this crowd. Um, I uh, live in California and have spent the last couple of summers in the High Sierra in uh, wildfire smoke and have gone to glaciers that were there in 2007 that are no longer there. So I've, I've, I've seen the damage and I think it's worldwide. Everybody's seen it. Um, I, wanted, uh, I went to COP26 in Glasgow. It was the first time I had been to one and I found it very impressive. And I wanna say that it's a, the UN and it's kind of the general assembly, all the nations together without a security council and it has a, that good aspect of all the nations are on an equal footing in the COP process. It's also got a problem in that it runs on the consensus model where every nation has to agree or the statements don't go forward. And that inevitably makes it too slow. And I think that was what the main thing that George was registering in his opening remarks. But um, I would want to emphasize Lavanya's point that you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We're better off with COP than without it. It's necessary, but not sufficient. Hmm. And in COP, we are in, we're in a nation state system. Nation states have sovereignty. That's not a good political system to solve a global biosphere <laughs> crisis. So in COP, nation states have to think of themselves as member states. And in the European Union, they're used to this. Uh, many countries of the world aren't used to this. But a member state is different from a nation state, and it cedes some sovereignty, at least in theory, to the collective of all the nations together. And that's an important shift. And so COP is kind of a spectacle in a society of the spectacle. You meet every year, and you look at each other. And uh, I wanna uh, register also what uh, Professor Ghosh said, that we should not just mark our promises to each other, but also the accomplishments that we've made and list those as well. Um, so seeing each other once a year to talk about climate, making promises that are intended from the start to ratchet up um, is, a, is a valid process. And, it, and since these are promises only and not legally binding treaties, you can maybe think of it as a kind of a, a marriage. We gather together, we make pledges to each other. You can break those pledges later, you can get divorced, but there's nowhere else to go. We're stuck with each other. And at COP, we have to recognize that every year. And so there's a value to COP, even though it is structurally too slow. And I once, I reckoned on the flight home that if we had 50 years to solve the climate crisis by the COP process alone, it might do it, but we only really have 10 before we have begun to break planetary boundaries as Johan Rockstrom has pointed out. And he taught me a lot there at COP. So with those remarks, I wanna shift over to the question that I have for the experts here. And I'm very sorry to um, um, bring up such a gnarly problem as this, and in essence, talking about money. Hmm. Um, and also the petrostates. This is something that Fatima has mm. pointed out also is very important. There are 
uh, nation states that are either blessed or cursed with fossil fuels in their territory. We can burn 500 gigatons more uh, fossil fuels before we break these planetary boundaries and descend into catastrophe. There's 3,500 gigatons identified in the ground and 80% of those are claimed and owned by nation states, the so-called petrostates. And these include countries that are um, very rich and countries that are very poor. They include Russia and Canada and Australia and the United States and China. They include Nigeria and Venezuela and um, Mexico and Brazil. These are petrostates where those governments rely sometimes 60 to 80% of their national income coming into the government comes from the sale and then the burning of fossil fuels. If, they, if those fossil fuels are kept in the ground as they need to be, then those countries go bankrupt, can't serve their people in social services that their money sometimes goes to. They go into disorder, they become failed states and they'll drag their feet and they'll burn those fossil fuels. So here's my question to the experts. How do we compensate the petrostates? How do we pay ourselves to do the right things rather than the wrong things? And people who've read my novel, Ministry for the Future, will know that I have some ideas there, carbon quantitative easing, or uh, perhaps uh, the creation of, of money by the central banks to pay um, people for drawing carbon down. But these are um, new financial instruments. These are This is a gigantic shift in the political economy of the world. I would love to hear comments, suggestions, and ideas for pushing that part of the process. How do we pay ourselves to do the right things rather than the wrong things? Thank you. Stan, thank you very much um, for that contribution. Um, really, really interesting and um, very, very incisive question. Uh, I'm going to go to Dr. Christopher McGlade uh, to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks, Ade, and, and thanks very much, Stan, for the for the question. Um, this is something we have been looking at for for a long time now, trying to understand the implications of rapid action on climate change for the the large resource holders around the world. Just to just to give one number on this, we have estimated that if the world pursues a trajectory towards a net zero by 2050, then the, the income from for those countries will be will drop by around about three quarters. So they will have to be surviving on three quarters less than what they, they currently have. Now that's clearly a, a pretty major reduction in, in, their, in their revenues. So there's a few things that, that, that would need to happen. First of all, a number of those countries subsidize the use of fossil fuels in the countries quite a lot. So they they the amount they charge to people there is significantly below the, the, the market prices for oil and gas. So going through a process of removing those subsidies, especially if they're inefficient subsidies, is incredibly important. That's not an easy task. People have been talking about fossil fuel subsidies for a long time, and unfortunately the progress has never been that great. But if we are serious about this, that's something that, that needs to happen. Another aspect which I think we should bring into the conversation is that the resources that a lot of those countries have, um, they, will, they will want to use them because in many cases, it's the biggest resource that they have available to them. And we should acknowledge that the reason we use a lot of oil and gas in the world today is because oil and gas is incredibly useful, but it's the emissions which are the, are the big problem here. So what needs to happen is those countries need to think of ways in which they can use or develop their resources without resulting in emissions. Now, they're going to require support and help to do that. Um, there's a lot of technologies that are available, but the finance isn't necessarily available for those countries and the incentives aren't available for them so that they can, uh, they can use their resources without those emissions. But I think even if we have all of those things, um, that's not going to be enough, given the, the massive drop that there would be. So we absolutely need to start thinking about more innovative ways of, of getting those countries on side, making sure that they're part of the conversation when we, we talk about climate change, rather than just viewing them as, as a problem or viewing them as, as, um, as, as irrelevant to, to the discussions or the emission reductions that are needed. Uh, thank you, Christoph. Um, 
really um, important um, answers there. I think maybe in one of our future live streams, we're, we're going to have to have one which is dedicated just totally on solutions. You know, just talking about the solutions to, 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 to the problems that we have here, because I think that's what's coming up time and time again. Um, we, we, we know what we have to deal with, but do people know, do enough people know the solutions and that there's solutions out there? Um, Tiro, I see you have your hand up. Thank you, I'll be very quick. Let's look at where we are. Um, Russia and the current security situation in Europe is Mac right on the question that you're asking. It's about the the uh, Soviet technology that's used to and has been used to produce the present wealth and the national economy of Russia never been reformed. And, and uh, <clears throat> also it's about the Nord Stream 2 pipeline here in the Baltic and all those other factors. So sometimes I try to think of, think of these things in a kind of a moment where the future meets with the past, and that's where we are. A lot of these petrol states, as we could call them, have never been reformed. They have never taken those steps that the most vanguard of nations and the kind of luxury that uh, <clears throat> other countries, when they think of demanding and, and uh, uh, high climate policies can afford. And that's why climate change doesn't really become only a sectoral or the solutions to these, they don't, they, you can't solve them with these petrol states by having one signal economic model or central banks um, pumping out money or subsidies. The complexity of how, for example, oil and gas are intertwined with the whole of the Russian state is extremely penetrating and uh, cross-sectoral. And in, if this is true, it implies that these uh, transitions would have to be then all of society across levels from top down and, and uh, from down up. And uh, who will be instigating those changes? That those are some of the reasons why we are so incredibly difficult place, in a difficult place to <clears throat> put these things into action. And um, I, I, I'm often thinking we should be more paying attention to the fact that these are not economic or natural resources questions only. They do penetrate through the petro-state uh, society, politics and leadership. And, and my God, what complexity that gives us. Thank you, Tiro. I mean, such a great question, um, Stan. I keep saying it because it, it, it goes through my mind. You know, how do we pay ourselves to do the right thing? If an alien race came down and being down and, and, and watched what we were doing right now, they would probably think we were bonkers, that we have to think of a way to pay ourselves to do the right thing. Wow. Um, now we're going to move on to our next uh, uh, guest. Um, and it's last but not least, we have Dave Vett. Uh, Dave, um, give us your introduction, please. Okay, hi everyone, my name's Dave Vetter. Um, so uh, we've pretty much run out of time, so I'm going to cut my bit short. I was going to talk about uh, the media and its treatment of climate change, um, but uh, I wanna, obviously, I think it's more important to thank uh, George, Niendo, Tomia and Stan for their presentations and CCAG, of course, for their work. Um, so I wanted to ask about this. CCAG has in recent months tried to highlight climate injustice. Um, and it's warned that the West is deliberately hampering climate mitigation and adaptation measures in the global South and uh, across Africa. Uh, the proof of this campaign by the West is in the pudding. Uh, we saw last week the African Solar Industry Association report that showed across the whole of Africa only 0.9 gigawatts of new solar was installed last year, uh, the lowest since 2015. Only 0.5% of the world's solar was installed uh, in 2021. That's the lowest percentage since 2013. So as a science-focused body, um, what can groups such as CCAG do in 2022 to help hold wealthy nations to account for breaking their promises to the global south? 
Thank you, David. Uh, great question. Um, who would like to take that one on here? Um, uh, Mark, Professor Mark Maslin. So great question, Dave. And don't worry, we always overrun. So uh, we would have uh, quite happily heard everything about the media from you, uh, given your <laughs> wonderful insights. Um, for me, and the thing is, I hate to have this whole rhetoric of education. Actually, I think, and I've said this before, I actually really believe that in Western countries, we need to go back to basics and actually teach our history properly. We actually need people to understand what we did in the past. <laughs> what was the impact of colonization? What was the impact of global slavery? What is the impact of us causing, even in the 60s and 70s, major revolutions in petrochemical uh, countries because we wanted their oil? Kids don't know that. I mean, British history in school, my kids, it's all wonderful. It's all sort of like Vikings and sort of things like that. No, we need the truth. Because with that truth and understanding of our own history comes the understanding of what we've done. Okay, there'll be guilt. We can deal with that. But then there's a responsibility to undo that damage. And I think that is really key. The global south knows this, okay? They know all this. They understand the pain and the anguish that they're going through now economically is because of that abuse. However, in an abusive relationship, if you don't actually have the abuser going, oh yeah, it was us, sorry, <laughs> you know, it's not going to work. And I think that is something we need to unpick, okay? We have a, a prime minister that glorifies the empire, okay? And basically go, oh, 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 we were wonderful, we were wonderful. No, once we do that, then we can start to address things. And I keep saying this again and again, that it's actually understanding our history to understand how we can have a better future. And I think that is the only way forward. Mark, the hairs on the back of my neck are standing up. That is perfect. You smashed it, my friend. Absolutely smashed it. Um, uh, who else? Oh, I see Aaron Narba, Dr. Aaron Narba Kosh. You'd like to say I'm something? Gonna, it's gonna be hard to follow Mark on this one. Uh, well, thank you, Mark, for that. Um, you know, a few days ago, Dave, I uh, was in a shop with my with my nine year old daughter. We were picking up some stuff we wanted to bake together. Um, the shop had a sign: "Nice to see, nice to hold. If it's broken, consider it sold." I'm sure we've seen a sign like that in many places, right? Uh, but somehow, uh, when we break the planet, uh, we say, "No, it's not our responsibility to pay up." So I think the first answer to your question, you know, what can a science-focused body do? No, we don't have to be scientists at all. We simply have to say, follow the same principle as you would follow anywhere else with regards to anything. You cause harm, you pay up. Um, that's the number one thing we have to do. The second part about, you know, promises not kept is promises not kept to yourselves. Right? Uh, when the global north does not keep its own promise to itself to change its economy, to when it says our way of life is non-negotiable, we can you know we'll shift from you know one big SUV to another big SUV, and we'll think that the second big SUV will have a electric battery. Uh, but we don't ask ourselves why do I need a huge SUV, which will also have a lot of materials that will go into it. Why do I need to drive 500 miles uh, once a year when I my most of my transport is going to be five miles, 364 days a year. So we've got to ask, and that's where the role of citizens and the whole question about activism that came up earlier comes in. Hold yourselves to account for what you've not delivered. Um, and then there's a third part about, you know, not what Mark was referring to about the past, but about the future. Now, if most of the energy demand is going to come from the global south, and as it happens, most of the sun shines on the global south. The question is, why is the investment not going to where the sun shines the most? And then we hear, no, please make more promises. But you make more promises, ah, but you're a very risky place to invest in. I came into this meeting just having finished 
a one hour long meeting with private equity players, one of whom was vehemently disagreeing with me by saying, listen, why are you saying there's a challenge? Now it makes total sense to invest in renewables. I said, where were you 10 years ago? And here's the problem. When the market thinks that market will solve everything is because it's forgotten that there was a market failure, which has been corrected by public policy. So I said, well, if solar makes all sense right now, what kind of policy intervention is now needed to make sure green hydrogen makes sense 10 years from now, or for you to tell me 10 years from now, why are you talking it's a problem? Green hydrogen makes perfect sense. The problem it doesn't make perfect sense is because you don't put money where you need to put it. So if you can solve these three things, right? If you break it, consider it sold and pay up, simple. Number two, hold yourselves to account for your own promises, the role of your citizens. And number three, pay where or invest, not pay, invest where it makes the most sense. Absolutely brilliant. Um, I just wanna say a huge thank you to everybody, all our guests, all our, our expert panel um, for what has been an excellent session today. Absolutely excellent. Um, sadly though, that's all we have uh, time for today. And thank you so much to our special guests, as I said, George, Niendo, Stan, Tolly, and Dave for framing such an important discussion and to our CCAG scientists for outlining what is hopefully a busy year ahead of crucial climate action and as always a huge thank you to everyone at home for joining us uh, if you have any further questions then do send them to us on any of our ccag social media channels and please please make sure you join us again for our next public meeting on thursday the 24th of february until next time take care The situation with climate change is clear. The crisis is not being managed in the way it needs to be managed at the moment. I am Sir Dave King. I have set up a climate crisis advisory group. The group represents the international experts on climate change to be available to the public to policymakers and to the media around the world. We need action now. What we as humanity do over the next five years will, in my view, determine the future of civilization. <laughs>